I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. If you don't have your Bibles with you, then just listen, because we're going to begin by reading a good section of it. So follow along with me if you'd like to. The book of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. And then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you're sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And from what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and they said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. And so they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Well, we're here, finally. The book of Jonah. I've been promising a series on this book for a long, long time. And to tell you the truth, right up until the very end of the week, I have felt hesitation to start. Why? Well, to be honest, I think the best way to answer that question is by means of an illustration I encountered years ago and filed away for such a time as this. The writer says, I sometimes picture the prophets rendered in portraits and sculptures all housed together in a vast, hushed art museum. A museum guide walk, walks a crowd through the gallery. On your left is a sculpture of Isaiah carved by the strong, deft hands of Michelangelo. Note the huge, hulking form, how Isaiah's torso swells and twists with muscle. His passion for God strains through every cord and sinew. 
See how his eyes, even in marble, blaze fire. Now to your right is a painting of Jeremiah by, of course, Rembrandt. Study his use of dark, mournful colors, how the shadows convey an atmosphere of hauntedness and grief, how potently the strong brushstrokes evokes the inner divisions of Jeremiah. Now next to him is Peter Paul Rubens' portrait of Elijah. This artist's bright, tumultuous style, his use of blurred contour to convey brisk motion perfectly, captures the prophet's wild muscularity, his fierceness, his boldness, his terrible aliveness. And on this wall, Daniel. Notice how the Dutch master Jan Vermeer has painstakingly rendered Daniel's calm serenity and shrewd piety in solid Spartan color. And note, too, his careful attention to detail in the backdrop of the Persian court. And next to him is Ezekiel. You will recognize Picasso's cubist style, the skewed, scattered jumble of shapes, the disarray of lines and forms, and how compellingly it conjures the prophets, tormented greatness, his cockeyed dignity, and over here, Edward Monk, in the same garish, churning style as his more famous painting, The Scream, has attempted to capture Hosea's lovesickness for his wayward wife. Ladies and gentlemen, that almost concludes our tour, but saving the masterpiece for last, I invite you to step over here and draw near to the framed portrait in the far corner. There you will behold a stunningly realistic description and depiction of the portrait of Jonah. And here awaits the surprise, for in the frame marked Jonah is not a painting, but a mirror, for Jonah is us. Jonah is us. Now, is there anything that would deter us from really digging into this biblical narrative? Yes, it would be the fact that Jonah is us. So I'm warning you right from the get-go, not one of us is going to emerge from this study of Jonah unscathed. That is, of course, unless you and I determine to completely detach ourselves from the internal work of the Holy Spirit as the Word of God is clearly revealed to us. But then again, if that is your decision, you will have already proven yourself to be a Jonah. And trust me, God will not let you go. So let's take a bird's eye view of this short but convicting book. Let's look at Jonah from about 30,000 feet, shall we? And by the way, what do you see in this picture behind me? What do you see? A ship. Look closer. You see anything else? There's a whale under that ship. A big one. It's interesting that this picture, as I've surveyed different people, there are two kinds of people. There's one that only sees the boat, and then there's somebody that sees the boat and the whale. Now that you see the whale, you won't be able to get it out of your mind. Let's look at Jonah from this perspective, the whole book. Just give you a sketch of what this book's about. First thing I want to mention at the outset is the title that I've chosen for this. Prodigal Prophet pursuing God. That's not our pursuit of God, that's God's pursuit of us. 
For years I've seen an undeniable parallel between Jesus' parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 and the book of Jonah. Here's a prophet, a child of the father who has a clear place in the family and even a destiny passed down from the father, but he's not interested. Doesn't want to do the family thing. Wants to do his own thing. So he bolts, just like the prodigal son in the parable. This is more than just resistance, mind you. This is a little more than reluctance. This is flat-out rebellion. Rebellion. The prodigal runs to the world. The father lets him go. The rebel gets so engulfed by a raging sea of sin that he almost drowns in despair. He finally comes to his senses, returns to the father, gets things right. Repentance takes hold. Salvation ensues, judgment is averted, and then the older brother gets ticked off because he can't accept the relentless love and grace of God poured out upon those who don't deserve it. This is the book of Jonah. Chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Only in the case of Jonah, Jonah is the prodigal who runs, he's also the penitent who returns, and he's the powder who regrets. He's both the younger and the older brother combined. And God the Father has to deal with both of those in Jonah because he loves them both. He loves the younger brother and the older brother. And he is a relentless pursuer of both. And it's interesting that both the parable of the prodigal and the book of Jonah ends the same way. Unresolved. Unresolved. And we'll get there. It ends unresolved. We don't know what happened in the life of either the older brother in the parable or in the life of Jonah after that book. It ends, as one author suggests, with a rebel saved by grace and a loving father appealing to a self-righteous powder. People just can't walk away from either the parable or the book and dismiss it. They've got to keep working it out for themselves. And here, once again, we realize that Jonah is us. You might right now be in a state bordering close to the idea of rebellion yourself. Here's what rebellion is. Definition. Rebellion is a refusal to do what God clearly requires. A refusal to do what God clearly requires. It's knowing what God wants in your marriage, for your kids, in your lifestyle, in your relationships, in your ministry calling, in whatever it is you want to put there. And you're saying in your heart to God, when you know what he's telling you to do, I won't do it. That's rebellion. You know what God wants you to do, but you're running and you're resisting and you're rebelling. If that's you, you're not going to like what this book has to say to you. Nobody's going to like what Jonah has to say. But know this. There are two things to remember from Jonah's experience. Mark these things down. Take these things to the bank, my friends. That the longer your rebellion lasts the harder it is to get back. 
And the next thing is that God is a relentless pursuer of us. He will not let you go. He always comes after you. Jonah wasn't the first person to flee from God, you know. Nor is he the last. He's also neither the first or last to realize that God is a relentless pursuer of people who he loves and that he is full of mercy as he deals with us. He's the hound of heaven, as poet Francis Thompson coined the term. And if you know that poem, here are some of the words to it. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him. And yet those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat, more instant than the feet. Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am whom thou seekest. This story is not really the story about the great prophet Jonah. Even though his name is mentioned 18 times in this book, and it's only mentioned 19 times in the entire Old Testament. Contrary to what most people remember about this book, it's not about a great fish, which is only referred to in this book four times. It's not even about the great city of Nineveh, which is mentioned nine times. So you know what this book is really about? This book is about God, who's mentioned 38 times in the 48 verses of this book. It's about God's will and how we respond to it. It's about God's love and how we reflect it. And it's about God's pursuit of us and how we receive it. A journey through the book of Jonah is an adventure into the heart of God. As Colin Smith writes, God has the first word here in the book, calling Jonah to a new ministry and unsettling his comfortable life. And God has the last word in the book, confronting Jonah's self-indulgence and revealing the extent of his own compassion. Then right at the center of the story, between the first word and the last word, Jonah compresses all that he has learned into a single sentence in chapter 2, verse 9. And you can read it right at the end. Salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. That's the heartbeat of the book of Jonah. It beats with the rhythm of the truthful reality that God is a God who reigns sovereign, who radically loves his children and relentlessly pursues them to the ends of the earth. And I, I resonate with Alistair Begg's assessment that the final sentence in the book of Jonah is a key to understanding the heart of the message that God puts forth here. In Jonah chapter 4, verse 11, you can look at it. God says... Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, as well as many animals? Should I not have compassion? You see, God surely wants us to obey his call. But even more than that, 
God wants us to adopt his heart. Should I not have compassion? Jonah reveals God's universal concern for all people because people matter to God. All people matter to God. God doesn't look at categories the way that you and I think. Look at people that way. People in this category or people in that category. Well, we think people in this category, well, they're my kind of people. I like these kinds of people. But people in that category over there, well, I can let them go without too much pain. You think God does that? People matter to God. Depressed people, educated people, divorced people, people with different politics from yours. They matter to God. Conservative people, liberal people, Muslims, atheists, every color of skin, Asian people, Hispanic people, Caucasian people, African American people, gay people, straight people, old people, young people, religious or irreligious people, Catholic or Protestant, Americans or immigrants, people matter to God. Every single one of them. And it's easy to forget that when we get all caught up in our clicky church thing. We too easily forget our calling, our calling collectively as Christians, as prophets and missionaries. Commissioned and sent to a world without Christ. It's interesting that the pagan city of Nineveh in the book of Jonah, responded better to the preaching of Jonah than Israel and Judah ever responded to any of their prophets, including Jesus. It's no surprise that Jesus was received more readily by the tax gatherers and sinners than by his own countrymen. And as John's Gospels points out in John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, he, meaning Jesus, came to his own, but those who were his own did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Now, now that you know a little bit about the entire book, let me give you a little sketch about why this book is so unique, because Jonah has been attacked more than any other book in the Old Testament. So uniqueness about the way this book has been attacked. Jonah has been challenged and ridiculed, like I said, more than any other book in the Old Testament, especially because of its miraculous events. Specifically, guess which one? The one about the guy surviving three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, right? Here's the reality. The fish is no big deal in light of the rest of the Bible. It isn't. Why do people single that one out? Start in Genesis. The creation account. God spoke into existence virtually everything that we have. The sun, the moon, the stars, the mountains established time itself. He created plants and animals and he breathed life into mankind. Seems to me if he can do that, appointing a fish as a taxi to get Jonah to his destination is not much of a deal, is it? 
Either the Bible is a supernatural book talking about supernatural things done by a supernatural God who is personally interested and involved in our lives, or it's not. Either it's all right, or it's an unfortunate, sad joke. Listen, the place of Jonah is with the prophets. And the message of the prophets is not natural. It's supernatural. Jonah was a younger contemporary of the prophet Elisha, whose entire ministerial life was characterized by miracles. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He multiplied food. He parted the water. I think there's no other prophet in the Old Testament that more closely parallels the miracles of Jesus than Elisha. Much like the narratives of the life of both Elijah and Elisha, this book of Jonah contains a narrative of the miraculous. It's a little bit different than the other prophetic books in that there's no prophecies given by Jonah. It's more of a narrative, but it kind of smacks of the same kind of stories we read about Elisha and Elijah. And it's no surprise that this book is a stumbling block to the agnostics and the skeptics. And yet Jesus himself referred to Jonah on more than one occasion in the face of the antagonistic Pharisees and increasing crowds who clamored for a sign to prove his claim as being the Messiah. You know what Jesus' response to them was? It was to point them directly to the miracle of Jonah in the belly of the great fish as a picture of his own resurrection, which is the ultimate miraculous sign. Amen? Turn to, Matthew, turn to Matthew for a moment. Matthew chapter 12. Just to refresh your memory on that. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to, to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." The men of Nineveh will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Here is the cornerstone of the Christian faith, Christ's resurrection. Amen? The greater miracle. And Jesus places it right alongside Side, the miraculous sign of Jonah in the belly of the fish. If Christ testified to Jonah's historical accuracy, then who am I to question it? Who are you to question it? You settle the resurrection of Christ in your heart and mind and the veracity of the miraculous events contained in Jonah is a cakewalk. And yet even Christian universities... And college professors call into question the historicity of this book, explaining it away as merely allegory or parable. Jesus didn't do that. 
As someone once put it, you need to decide for yourself right at the outset. Do you believe in a God who created the universe and who spoke it into existence, who is a personal God, who loves each of his children, and when he draws them into a personal relationship with him, he will never let go of them? Never let go of them? Because if you believe that, then you believe the message of the book of Jonah. Plain and simple. Beyond the miraculous, there is also a uniqueness to the prophet himself. You know that Jonah is the only prophet of Israel that God specifically called to preach to a pagan nation? The only one. He's also the only recorded prophet to turn his back on God's commission and run. Literally run in the opposite direction. There was no question in Jonah's mind about what God wanted him to do. He simply didn't want any part of it. As James Edwards rightly observes, he says, tougher than the transformation of the unrighteous is the transformation of the self-righteous. Because of his rebellion, Jonah is also, to my knowledge, the only prophet in the Bible to have received the same call of God twice. Twice. Here it is. Chapter 1, verse 2. God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Twice. How gracious is God? He got a second chance. This is indeed yet another revelation of God's amazing grace to me. Actually, if you cut this book anywhere, it bleeds of God's grace. So let's dive in and take a look at the first couple of verses here. Look at Jonah's inescapable call. Verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. Cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Here's the commission. The prophet, Jonah, the son of Amittai. The name Jonah means dove. All that we know about Jonah in the Old Testament, believe it or not, comes right here from this book. And one other reference in the Old Testament. Out of the 19 times that Jonah's name occurs, 18 of them are in this book. The other one is found in 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25. Turn there if you would. 2 Kings 14 and 25, 23 to 25. Let me read it to you. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. And he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, 
according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant, say it, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath Hefer. All that we know about Jonah is right there. Now, Jonah lived, but there's a lot you can derive from that one little section. Jonah lived at the time of Jeroboam II of Israel, and under his reign, the northern kingdom of Israel prospered. As a matter of fact, it was at its zenith since the time of Solomon. Jonah, the servant of the Lord, the prophet of the Lord, was used of God at that time to be a spokesman of God in the northern kingdom of Israel. In fact, the expansion of Israel's borders was announced by Jonah himself. He enjoyed the status of a prophet who spoke God's word of truth and a servant who did God's will. He was from Gath-Hefer, a town just a stone's throw away, actually about three miles north of Nazareth in Galilee from where Jesus would eventually come. Interestingly, the Pharisees, when attempting to discredit Jesus, challenged Nicodemus in John's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 52, and they said to him, Hey, search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Uh, I guess they failed in their fact-checking. Because Jonah was clearly from Galilee. He was the son of Amittai. There is an old Hebrew tradition, actually, that says that Jonah may have actually been the son of the widow at Zarephath, whose life Elijah had restored. Because he had spoken truth to her about the child, she is said to have named him the son of truth. A wordplay. Why is that a wordplay? Because the son of Amittai literally means son of my truth. Speaking of fact-checking, this is only rabbinic tradition, by the way. Hardly a fact, so I wouldn't build a whole theology around that. But here are a couple of other facts that are true. Jonah was a prophet. Jesus called him a prophet. The Bible called him a prophet in two places. But as a prophet, you've got to remember that he wasn't a priest. He didn't lead worship. He didn't offer sacrifices. He spoke the word of the Lord. He spoke the truth. You know what prophets were? Prophets were reformers. They often stirred the pot, so to speak. They shook things up because the word divides, right? You speak the word of truth, it either comforts the afflicted or afflicts the comfortable. It divides. Ahab called Elijah the troubler of Israel in 1 Kings 18, 17. But Jonah wasn't troubling Israel. No. He prophesied something good for Israel, and it actually came true, which certainly underscored his credibility as a prophet of God. He was enjoying the comfort of a nation that was at the height of its prosperity, and maybe that was Jonah's problem. Maybe Jonah was comfortable. And God was about to stir the pot for Jonah. As one man speculates, maybe serving in Gath-Hefer, Jonah enjoyed the luxury of a loyal and responsive audience. Godly people wanted to hear his word in those days, just as they do today, and so Jonah would have been in big demand. If he was in ministry today, Jonah would have a full schedule of speaking engagements, probably. His books would be bestsellers. 
then his page on Facebook would be bombarded by fans. Jonah enjoyed a good life, doing good work in a good place. He was living his dream until one day God interrupted his life. Look at verse 2. The word of the Lord came, arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. So here's the place that we're talking about in this book. Nineveh. Jonah was about to be uprooted and upended. Whoever said that the life as a prophet was easy? Whoever said the life of a Christian was easy? Because it's not. Anybody say amen to that? Especially when you get a call from God in the middle of your comfy life. How many have a call from God in the middle of their comfy life? And nobody's raising their hands, right? Just a couple of people. Well, then this message is for you guys. God wants Jonah to go straight into the heart of his enemy's hometown. Nineveh, the great city. Nineveh eventually became the capital of Assyria in 700 B.C., but Nineveh wasn't the capital at Jonah's time. Kala was. Kala was a few miles south of Nineveh and was the capital, but Nineveh was the great city. According to Genesis 10 verse 12, it was originally built by the apostate Nimrod, who was a hunter of men, according to Genesis 10. The Ninevites were the enemies of the Jews, and it was located about 550 miles northeast of Palestine. Nineveh was indeed a huge metropolis. Estimates hover around 600,000 people were there. And we know from chapter 4, which I just read, that there were at least 120,000 who didn't know the difference between their right hand and their left, i.e. probably means children. But that's pretty urban for Jonah's day, wouldn't you say? An urban center. But Jonah's a country boy. God calls a country boy to an urban, nasty city. And furthermore... Jonah's a prophet. He's not a Navy SEAL. Going to Nineveh in Jonah's day would have been akin to going to Mosul, Iraq during the height of ISIS occupation today. As a matter of fact, that's where Nineveh is. You know what that is? It was a hotbed of terrorists, even in Jonah's day. In the time of Jonah, the Assyrians were known as one of the most violent, cruel, and torturous groups of terror-inducing people ever known to man. Notorious for their vicious brutality, they represented pure evil, massacring their enemies by mutilation, burning them alive, dismemberment, and decapitation. They were one dark superpower, friends. And eventually, the Assyrians would one day conquer the northern tribes of Israel and carry them into captivity in 722 B.C. Only, one only need read the words of Nahum, the prophet Nahum, to grasp the nature of the vileness of the great city Nineveh. Turn to Nahum for a moment in chapter 3. Ah, now, you're, now you're in it, right? Where is Nahum, you say? Jonah, Micah, Nahum. If you came to our Monday night Bible study, 
You would know all the books of the Bible in sequence by now, hopefully. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots. Horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. Verse 5, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And then the final verse of Nahum's book emphasizes the violence of the Assyrians in the form of a rhetorical question. Look at that verse, verse 19 of chapter 3. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? In other words, who has not felt your endless cruelty? This was the great city to which Jonah was sent. Have you ever thought about the conversation Jonah might have had with God in his spirit? I mean, even though this book is likely an autobiography written by Jonah himself, there are clearly no recorded words here that are spoken to God, but we can speculate, maybe. In the imaginative, lyrical style of Dr. Seuss, John Ortberg offers his take on this conversation that he might have had. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah. Could you, would you go to preach? Could you, would you go to reach the people in Assyria? For you fit my criteria. And then Jonah says to the Lord, I would not go there in a boat. I would not go there in a float. I would not go there in a gale. I would not go there in a whale. I do not like the people there. If they all died, I would not care. I will not go there to that great town. I'd rather choke. I'd rather drown. I will not go by land or sea, so stop this talk and let me be. Or as Tony Evans put it, God calls and Jonah says, Who? Me? There? No. That's probably more like it. Nineveh was not high on Jonah's priority list, say the least. Let me ask you a question before we move on. What's your Nineveh? What's your Nineveh? What's my Nineveh? Is there something God wants you to do today? This week? Next year? Somebody he wants you to go to? Speak to? Place he wants you to bring his light so that you're simply flat out refusing to go? What's your Nineveh? But why would God send Jonah to such a ruthless place? Well, here's the premise in verse 2. For their wickedness has come up before me. Translation, the evil of their sin is in my face. As a matter of fact, that's basically what the Hebrew word before me literally means. Their sin has come up and is constantly in my face. 
And so you say, well, why not take them out, God? You got the power. Why send Jonah? Just send fire. Teach them a lesson. Show them who's in charge. Well, I think I know the answer to that question. It's because God's hatred of sin is surpassed only by God's love for souls. Doesn't John 3.16 say that for God so loved the world? See, God loved Israel even in their sin, so he sent the prophets to turn them back. God loved the people of Nineveh even in their sin. So God sends Jonah to call them back as well. But the crux of this whole book is that God loved Jonah enough even in his rebellion, to turn him around in the comfortable place of his spiritual complacency. What's your Nineveh? As Colin Smith put it, nothing is more disturbing to a comfortable faith or a comfortable church than God's passion for the world. That's a serious statement. Worthy of meditation. That's what this book is about. And he is willing to radically interrupt your life and my life and the life of this entire church in order to press that truth into our souls. Not only would Jonah's mission be assigned to Nineveh, but also assigned to Israel, who also needed to know who's boss, because Israel was given the charge to be a light to the nations. And instead, they were idolatrous, and God was going to use the nations to punish them by taking them into captivity. That seems to be the pattern, though, of of God's purposes throughout his workings in the Old Testament. He's got multiple reasons for the things that he does. Just as an example, in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, we're talking about the plagues being poured out on Egypt now, okay? This is what it says. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Okay? Chapter 7. Verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh will not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, My people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, by great judgments, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. Twofold purpose for those signs. That Israel might know that God is sovereign, that the Egyptians might know that God is sovereign. Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter 4, same idea, verses 23 and 24. 
says this, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until he had, we had crossed, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. It's not just Israel that God is concerned with. The signs were for Nineveh. The signs were for Israel. Both unbelievers and believers and to backsliders as well. Because when we, find, when we finally come to grips with the fact that the gospel is not just for non-Christians, it's for Christians as well. You get that? That when you preach the gospel to somebody else, it affects you as much as it affects them. Tim Keller once said that the gospel isn't simply the ABCs of Christianity, but the A through Z. In other words, when you start in with the ABCs, it's going to affect your life until you get to Z. By sending Jonah to Nineveh and seeing the results which only God could accomplish in Nineveh, it would also be a testimony to Jonah who desperately needed to know that God was in charge. Not just over Nineveh, but over him. I think Jonah knew that God was in charge. That's kind of why he didn't want to go. Because he knew that God could save Nineveh. We find that out in chapter 4. Not yet, but in chapter 4. But what Jonah wasn't gravitating to was the fact that God was sovereign over Jonah. Look at how clearly and how simply God laid it out. In verse 2, the commands. Arise, go, cry out. Arise, go, cry out. All God wanted was for Jonah to speak for him. Simple task, right? Simple task. Simple message. Get up and go and speak. God said go. Jonah said no. Priscilla Shirer zeroes in on the crux of Jonah's internal conflict. Jonah is the quintessential picture of a person who serves God and yet still seeks to hold the title role in his story. He's been given the gift of prophecy and was willing to use it as long as he could do it in the place and among the people he wanted to do it with. As soon as God's will led Jonah out of his comfort zone, he opted out. God didn't change what he wanted Jonah to do, no. God just altered where and to whom Jonah was to do it. And so as we wrap this up today, I ask you to consider, consider this, who it is that has the title role in the story of your life. Who has the title role in the story of your life? Is it you or is it God? And that's where we're going to pick it up next time. And this is what we're going to look at. Listen, friends, when God calls you to something new, he's always up to something good. And when God moves you towards something hard, he's usually about to accomplish something great. So over the next few weeks, as we unpack the book of Jonah, make it a point to find Jesus there. Would you? Or better yet, let Jesus find you. For today then, as you reflect on God's call upon Jonah to leave the comfort of a life he loved, to go to a place that was saturated with sin, consider the contrast between Jonah 
and Jesus, as one writer described it. With this we'll close. Jonah was in a good place, doing good work, enjoying a good life. And then God said, Jonah, I want you to go to another place and do a different work for the sake of people I love, people who are facing an imminent judgment. And Jonah said, no. Now consider Jesus. He was in heaven, ruling the universe by the word of his power, adored by angels. He was in the best place, doing the best work and enjoying the best life. Then the father said to Jesus, I want you to go to another place where you will be utterly rejected, live a life that will lead to torture, crucifixion, and death. Do the work of becoming an atoning sacrifice for the people that I love who are facing an eternal judgment. And Jesus said, yes. Jonah or Jesus? Who will you track with as you leave here today? Let's pray. And let this be our prayer. Lord, make me less like Jonah and more like Jesus. Save me from being the kind of person who cares more about my comfort, my reputation, and my success than I do about the people you are calling me to serve. Help me to keep all of my dreams on your altar and to be ready at all times to respond with faith and with obedience to your call. For we ask it in the spirit of and in the precious name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior and our Lord. Amen.